0: I want you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. The rich, rich opportunity we have once again to study God's Word. And I just have to say that as I was meditating this week upon this great, great passage of Scripture on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. I couldn't help but as the more I meditated, the more I wrote down, and the more I wrote down, the slower I become, and the slower I become, the longer it takes, but the longer it takes, the more holy we become, and we are embarking upon chapter 9 of Mark and this tremendous portion of God's Word that speaks of a very, very unique situation in the life of our Lord and in the life of His three intimate disciples, Peter, James, and John, commonly called the Transfiguration. You follow along as I read, and I may also have us read the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke in order for us to have the full and complete setting in this one ministry in the life of our Lord. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. And then turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, beginning with the first verse. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came up to them and touched them and said, Rise up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming, and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And then Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming or flashing like lightning. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Now after reading those three accounts of this one miraculous occurrence, I want to remind you of the context in which Mark records these words. You remember I said to you last time that there was intense persecution going on in Rome. And if Mark was writing this epistle or having written it, it's an occasion of great comfort for many of these people obviously were not there and This intense persecution and suffering would be buttressed if the very disciples, Peter, James, and John, were able to speak of this event. And if they were able to speak of this event, they would be able to encourage the disciples, the followers of Christ, with two crucial things that I believe are at the heart of this text of Scripture. I believe that the point of this passage is twofold, and it would be what would be on the minds of Peter, James, and John for the rest of eternity. And I believe that what would be crucial for them to understand and what would be a great comfort would be to affirm two things in this transfiguration. One, that Jesus Himself is the God-man, He is the majesty. He is the one who is God come in the flesh. And if He is the God of all comfort, He would be able to comfort these Christians in very intense persecution. And I believe that secondly, this transfiguration account speaks of the great powerful coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And that is why verse 38 of Mark 8 says, speaks of the glorious return of Christ under the power of His Holy Father with the angels. And I believe this transfiguration is stage one of that coming. It would be a foretaste of glory divine. It would be but a glimpse of what Jesus will do when He ultimately comes. I believe stage two is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the forming of the church at Pentecost in Acts 2 and they saw the glory of Jesus Christ as He infused the disciples that very band of intimate followers, Peter, James and John, with the ability to proclaim the truth with such power that thousands came to faith in Christ and of course stage 3 is yet to come even for us and that is the full and complete, personal, and bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And what I believe is being prefigured here in this transfiguration account are those two great realities. Here's what I did this week. I alluded to the fact that I had spent a great deal of time thinking through this text. In fact, so much time that I couldn't even get to the verses now, I know that's hard for you to understand because I go to the verses almost every time on an immediate basis. But when you have a passage like this that is so chocked full of theology, I do a disservice to you and to the ministry of the Word of God unless we are able to break open these truths in such a way that we are really understanding what's behind the intent of this passage. And so what I want to do today is to give you a theology lesson. I don't even necessarily want to preach this text. What I want to be able to do is to show you what is going on behind the text so that you understand the theology of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ and what is going on here. I could give you an exposition of these verses, which I trust we'll be able to do, Lord willing, next time. But I want you to understand the passage itself and all of its theological precision. And all of its import, it is glorious. It is is majestic. And if we were to spend one Sunday talking about the theology behind the transfiguration, it may very well be the only time you and I ever hear a message about such a theology. And I want to do that for you this morning. Because if this particular text and its intent was a great encouragement to the persecuted Christians of Jesus' own day, how much more would it be for us? How much more would it be a tremendous encouragement for us to understand the details behind the very transfiguration of Christ on that holy mountain? You say, well, first of all, pastor, I want you to define for me what is a transfiguration. And that's honestly an opportunity for me to do so because that's not something that we think about or we even use as a term these days the term itself transfiguration from which we get the word metamorphosis is really talking about a transformation it's really talking about someone as a figure as a person like the person of Christ who is being supra transformed something about even his, facial feature, as we read in Luke's gospel, was being made different before the very eyes of the disciples. Now, we don't know, obviously, because we weren't there, what it looked like. But what we do know is that the testimony of Scripture says that somehow and in some way, both with his clothing and with his person, especially his face, he was transformed or transfigured from somehow in the natural dimension as a man to look to, like you and I would, to someone who had some sort of supra-terrestrial transformation to his face. Literally, the changing of his face to somehow allow the disciples to see that it was not just a man who was in their midst. That what or whom was in their midst was in fact God himself. That's the transfiguration. That's what it means. And it, it's, it's a fulfillment of what Jesus had just said in verse 38 of Mark 8. He said, For who is or whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. You see, He's talking about glory. And He's talking about His second coming. And the Bible says in chapter 9, verse 2, six days later. And I believe that's The very fulfillment of what he says in verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some of those, read in Peter, James, and John, there are some of those, you three men, who are standing here, who will not taste death until you, these three, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And I think the very transfiguration itself is the first stage of that coming with power. They saw it on his face. They saw it identifiably in His clothing. And it was brilliant. And what that is teaching us is that that can only occur with the God-man. Jesus Christ is God. He is deity. You know, we could go to a lot of other passages, and we have on Sunday nights in our Defending Your Faith series, and we've talked about how to explicitly and implicitly defend your faith with regard to the deity of Christ. But this is as great a text as there is, because this is the transfiguration of some who might believe He's only a man to show us unmistakably that this is not just a man, this is God come in the flesh. And when that flesh is torn away and with that glory protruding, we can see that this is something glorious. This person is someone who is majestic. And it proves to us that Jesus is who He claims to be. And not only that, but secondly, we see this statement of the coming glory and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and He says unmistakably, this is that. And this is, this is profound. I, I don't know that I've ever seen this in this passage as much as I studied it this week. And that's what I want to do for you this morning. I want to tell you about how this passage affirms the deity of Christ, His majesty, and secondly, how it affirms that Jesus is talking about His very glorious second coming. You say, how are you going to do that? By many, many allusions, by many, many statements that are made here that will just blow our minds as to what is being taught behind the scenes. And I'm going to give you a few of those with regard to this matter of His majesty that are so incredibly incomparable. But the way I want to do this is to prove to you that His majesty and His second coming glory is what is being talked about here in the Transfiguration. You say, well, how can you do that? Well, I can't do it by Peter's statement here. Because you remember as we read those gospel accounts, he didn't really even realize what was going on. He, all he said was, listen, let's just build three tabernacles right here. And Luke... Agrees. He didn't even realize what he was saying. You say, did Peter ever finally resolve in his own mind what was happening here at the Transfiguration of Christ? Most assuredly. Turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. And I'll tell you exactly what Peter ultimately came to learn about this very experience. And this confirms for us the point of this passage. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you, and here's the first one, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's talking there almost as though he's referring to the second coming, Right? the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Almost every other Bible writer in the New Testament you hear about when he talks about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about that ultimate second coming glory. But here Peter says, We are making known to you by our eyewitness account the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, But we were eyewitnesses, secondly, of His majesty or His deity. When? When was this, Peter? For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And when is this, Peter? Is this a vision where you've already seen the second coming and the majestic deity of Jesus Christ? No, he says, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter says that this passage has a twofold edge. One, the affirmation of the deity, the majestic glory of Jesus Christ. And secondly, His glorious and powerful return. You say, wow, I didn't really realize that that's what the transfiguration was all about. Oh, there's much more. Much more. You say, can there be other things that affirm that this is what is being referred to? Absolutely. First of all, let's take the majesty of Christ the affirmation of His deity. What in this text of Mark 9 gives us the facts about the confirmation or the reality of His deity? Well, let me give you a couple of them. Number one, when Jesus Christ is referred to here as revealing Himself to Peter, James, and John, it is the exact parallel of God the Father revealing Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. You say, where is that? Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24, and we'll see this very plainly. Exodus chapter 24. And this is is tremendous. If we don't understand this, we really don't understand what's happening in this passage. This passage, as much as anything else, is what we call eschatologic. It has implications from this time forward to the coming of Christ. In fact, it has implications for all eternity. In Exodus chapter 24, notice all of the striking parallels between this account that we've read about in Mark 9 and this account here with Moses and God the Father in chapter 24. Look at verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. The first parallel that you can see that's striking is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. God the Father has instructed Moses to come up on the mountain. And of course, this is Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly what mountain Jesus and the three disciples were on. It could be Mount Hermon. It was about 9,000 feet high. That's probably the likely mountain that's being referred to there. But nevertheless, there are two mountains being referred to, one with Moses and God the Father and one with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 13, so Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Verse 15, then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Does that have any parallel? Sure. In Mark 9, just as we read, we talked about the cloud that enveloped them. That's another striking parallel. And in verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And where does the glory of the Lord rest on Mount Hermon? On Christ Himself. And the cloud covered it for how many days? Six days. Any parallel there in Mark 9? After six days. You say, what's the significance there? Did you realize that there was a six-day gap between the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles? Perfect, striking parallels. And, to say nothing of the fact that Moses was at both places. Moses is here on this mountain, Mount Sinai, enveloped in the cloud of God. Six days, God is preparing to reveal himself. Six days, Jesus is, re- is preparing to be revealed to the disciples. They're on a mountain, and Moses is on both places. In verse 17, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. That's just like this whiteness, this brightness that is so glorious. It's the brightness of bright that cannot even be laundered on this earth. You can't bleach something as white and as bright as it was in the transfiguration of Christ. In verse 18, Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Boy, just striking parallels there. You say, what's the connection? The connection is this. If God the Father is revealing Himself personally to Moses... Jesus Christ is being revealed as the majestic glory, the God-man to Peter, James, and John in the presence of Moses. Well, there's a lot more here than we really see if we just read the text ourselves. We have to look at our Bibles. And don't you know that if God had opened the eyes of Peter, James, and John being Believers in Yahweh being true Jews, being followers of Messiah, if they had, in fact, read Exodus 24, and if they were true Jews, they would have. They would have even memorized it in the Hebrew text. They would have hearkened immediately to the idea that this is that. This is an exact parallel. This is a fulfillment of these things. The cloud, the mountain, the revealing of deity. This is incredible. This is tremendous. This isn't just Jesus being transfigured before three disciples with no parallel in the Old Testament. This is an affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. This isn't just some man who was appointed by God the Father who was only a mortal who had sin in his life, but was working on that sin and came to a place of acceptability before God so that God then ultimately said, I want you to take your followers up on a mountain because I'm going to declare you as my chosen one. No, not at all. This is an opportunity for Jesus to be revealed as the God-man, as the sinless one, as the chosen one. Boy, this is, this is majestic. This is glorious. You want to defend the deity of Christ? Right here. You say, well, what about Elijah? Why is he here? Well, did you realize that Elijah had a very similar experience? Look at 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah had a very similar experience. What was his experience? Well, you remember that he was being chased around by Jezebel, that wicked woman, and her weak husband Ahab. And they sent a messenger to Elijah in 1 Kings nineteen two. That they want to take his life and they're doing everything they can to find him, to kill him. And he was afraid. And in verse 5, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. And then notice this verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, a parallel with Moses and what he did on Mount Sinai, to Horeb, the mountain of God. Another mountaintop experience, another ministry from God and His holy angels, giving him strength. Allowing him to see the glory of the Lord. Allowing him to receive bounty from the Lord. And he stayed on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And God visited him there. You see, that's why Moses and Elijah show up at the transfiguration of Christ. Well, this, is, this is tremendous. This is all going on even before we read the passage itself. You say, what else is significant about Moses and Elijah? Why are they here at the transfiguration of Christ? Well, there's other amazing things. First of all, Elijah and Moses knew no grave. Remember that? Even the angels were fighting over the body of Moses there in Deuteronomy 34.6. Elijah, of course, as you know, never died. The Lord just took him up in a chariot of fire. The law of Moses came down from Mount Sinai. God had given him that law. So he was representative at that transfiguration of the law of God. And Jesus was transfigured before him because he was the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. Elijah is there as the great prophet because in the last chapter of Malachi, right before we go into the intertestamental period and right before the New Testament, Elijah comes as the great prophet Elijah is the one who has prophesied. He is going to come and restore all things. And he comes there before Jesus and the transfiguration because Jesus is the ultimate prophet. That's why God the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to the prophet. Listen to the great prophet. That's an allusion to Deuteronomy 18. There will be a prophet, God says, and I will send him to you. And that prophet is none other than Jesus Christ. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus transfigured before them because he is the ultimate fulfillment of the law and he's the great prophet. You remember the two men at the empty tomb after Christ had been resurrected? Luke 24, verse 4, John 20, verse 12. A lot of commentators, and I think there's good merit, believe that that, in fact, was Moses and Elijah. They superintended everything that God wanted them to do and He sent them on a task and the two men were showing up at the tomb to do exactly what God wanted them to do. Again, confirming the idea that Jesus Christ not only transfigured at the mountain but raised from the dead to confirm that He is the Son of the living God. You remember the two men at the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1 verse 11? Most people believe Moses and Elijah. Again, confirming the ascending glory of Jesus Christ. You remember the two witnesses of Revelation 11.3? Most attribute that, Moses and Elijah. The precursor to the actual second coming of Jesus Christ Himself. I don't know if it's Moses and Elijah. I'd like to think so. They're certainly the greater candidates probably than anybody else. Boy, all of that just shows me in unmistakable language that the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, it is unique, it is phenomenal, it is majestic, and it affirms His deity. There's another attributable cause to this, God Himself. You say, well, listen, Moses and Elijah, it's good to have them around. You know, if you're going to have a transfiguration on a mountain and you want two guys to come, have Moses and Elijah show up. That'd be pretty good company. But if you want to have someone to show up To affirm who Jesus is, you have the voice of God, the Father Himself, saying, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Boy, if you were there, what would you think? You're Peter. You're James. You're John. You're standing there and you're half asleep and then all of a sudden this majestic glory is being revealed. This face is shining whiter than any white. The clothes are flashing like lightning and then you hear this this cloud enveloping you and Jesus himself, and then this voice saying, this is my beloved son. I bet it was a bass voice. I mean, I can't think of anything other than God the Father saying, this is my son. Well, what an incredible experience. You think these men would be comforted and encouraged and buoyed in the midst of great persecution, to know that the very one who is being transfigured before him is none other than the majestic glory. You think they go through all of that intense persecution in the early part of the book of Acts where Peter's preaching, Stephen is being stoned, Christians are being killed right and left, some of them at the hands of Saul himself from Tarsus. And every time they preach and every time they teach and every time they're thrown into prison... They are hearing of the matchless glory of the transfiguration on that mountain. Men, don't give up. Don't give up for one moment. Peter says, I have seen His glory. I think that would encourage me, wouldn't you? If you saw the glory of Jesus Christ shone like the sun never could shine, you think you could handle persecution? I think you could. Oh, this is a great text on the deity of Christ. He's no mere man. He is God in flesh. You say, what else? Is there any other parallel? Absolutely. Remember that symbol of the cloud? Oh, I wish we could go into it. Exodus 24, we read about the cloud, God's very presence visiting His people. Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. All attest that God used as an instrument to convey His presence the cloud of protection all the way through the Exodus wanderings, God's cloud of protection, His very presence was visibly manifested. Well, a lot of us would say today, is God here? Is God anywhere around? Is He, is he speaking to the church? Is He comforting believers? Is He around for my trial and my test? Boy, the children of... The Exodus understood that this cloud was the very manifest presence of God Himself. He met all their needs. He gave them grace and mercy. He fed them manna from the wilderness. And when you are up on that mountain, and if you have all of that data in your mind with Peter, James, and John as faithful Jews, and you see that cloud enveloping you in Christ, what's going to be your thought? This is God. God has enveloped us. God the Father is speaking. I think that this man who is shining brightly before us, he is deity. Boy, this symbol is tremendous. All the way through the Old Testament, Psalm 97 2. All these passages speak of God's presence in the cloud. And almost every time it speaks of God's presence, there is this tripartite formula I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of them. Boy, what an encouragement! What an encouragement in times of great persecution. What an encouragement for all time. That He is our God. That we are His people. And He promises us, I will dwell in the midst of you. You know how He dwells in the midst of His people today? It's not with a visible manifest cloud. That's not necessary for us. God does not believe that's best for us. What He believes is best is to actually give us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit boy what a comfort what an encouragement i can go through any trial any test any difficulty in this life if i know i have the indwelling presence of the holy spirit i will be your god this is this is the transfiguration understood to the max this is great now you know why i was excited all week i have i have god indwelling me i have All of the confirmation that I need in the transfiguration narrative that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, that He gives me grace and mercy, that He comes to me and He visits me in the cloud of protection by His Holy Spirit. Even in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, when Christ ascended, after He had said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received Him out of their sight. You see, God was communicating again. There is deity cloud is receiving him. God beckons the clouds, Christ beckons the clouds and they do exactly what he tells them to do. And if that weren't enough, Revelation 1:7, behold, Christ is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be amen. When he comes in those clouds, it's going to be unmistakable like God was in that cloud hovering and protecting over the children of Israel, this is God manifest. God is here. The six days, the confirmation of the Day of Atonement and the preparation period for the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration that God is here, God is in the midst of us, God has forgiven us our sins. The brightness of the light, you saw that in Exodus 24, the brightness of Christ's face in the transfiguration. You say, how bright is it? You want to know how bright this is? Listen to Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, talking about Christ, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. That's why I think it's a bass voice. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, listen to this, was like the sun shining in its strength. You ever tried to look at the sun for any length of time? What happens when you look away? Black dots in your eyes. You can't look at the sun. You can't even look at the sun for any length of time. Your eyes will be blinded. And he is like the sun shining in its strength, flashing like lightning. And, folks, that's just the transfiguration. When Jesus Christ comes in his second coming glory, no eye will be able to withstand the brightness of that light. It'll be all consuming. I remember one time I was talking to my family about this just the other day when we were taking a trip through West Memphis. I was in my first year of seminary. I was going to seminary in Memphis, and I was driving back over there, and I was in West Memphis, and I stopped at that truck stop, which is that sort of last stop before you go across the bridge into Memphis. And I was there, and I was having a meal there at the little bar stool, and all of a sudden I heard this this crash. And I looked around, and I saw one of these tanker trucks with one of those huge uh, petroleum tankers attached to the cab. Could have been gas or oil. I don't know exactly what it was, but I realized that what happened was about a 100 yards off from the exit to the truck stop. He was going too fast and he couldn't negotiate the turn. And the sloshing and the imbalance of the fuel caused his tanker to tip over and when it did, it immediately burst into flames. I couldn't believe it. You know, it's one of those incidents where you look and you say, is this really happening right now? And immediately I pointed, I was the first one to see it, and I said, look, and immediately the cab was burst into flames, and I saw this man falling out of the cab on fire, and so I ran and put my hand on the the door, and it was about a hundred yards away, and it was dusk, the sun had just peaked, and as soon as I put my hand on the handle, it was too hot even to touch, and it was about 100 to 150 miles away. There must have been a full set of fuel in that tanker. And so we grabbed some wet towels and we tried to put those towels on that, that handle. And when we did, we pushed open the door just a little bit. And as soon as we pushed open the door, it was like a vacuum. And all of that heat just sucked right into the, to the place and we couldn't even go out. We were prevented. The, it was too hot. And all of us just stood and stunned the silence as we watched that entire tanker burn up completely. I've never forgotten that. And I thought to myself, what is going to be the flaming fire of the coming of Jesus Christ? So hot, so intense. And for us, we'll have the seal of protection. It'll be for us glorious, lovely, wonderful. We'll see Him as white, and that'll be the sign of perfection, sinlessness. And we'll embrace it. And for the others, it'll be the sign of judgment. It'll consume them. You know what this transfiguration is all about? It's all about the holiness of the chosen one. The whiteness, the brightness, the flashing of light, the sun shining in His face. You say, well, is that just affirming His deity? Oh, it's much more than that. It's affirming His second coming. Because that's just a foretaste of what's going to happen. This text is really telling us that when He comes with the power of His Holy Father and with the angels, it'll be the actual coming of the ultimate Elijah, the ultimate prophet. You see, Elijah did live at that time, and God took him up, and he returned to this mountain And that is true. But there's one greater than Elijah and his name is John the Baptist and that's who Jesus is referring to. And they did to him whatever they wished and they killed him. But there is one who is greater than the first Elijah and greater than the second Elijah. In fact, he's the ultimate Elijah and that's Jesus himself. And when he's transfigured before those three men, they know unmistakably. You say, do they know that? Well, not at that time. That's true. Their eyes were blinded enough, either by their own sin or by God's decree or both, that they don't understand at that moment. In fact, a little longer in that Mark 9 passage, when he speaks of his death before his second coming, it blows their mind they don't understand what he's talking about, and it says, what does he mean about dying and rising again? You'll say, well, what, what is he referring to here? What, what is he talking about? He's talking about verse 38, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And this is a foretaste of that. This is stage one. And they're going to see it in greater brilliance when they need to understand it in Acts 2. See, they can't understand what's going to happen in Acts 2 here at the Mount of Transfiguration. They don't understand it. They're not ready to yet, but they will and I'm sure that at Acts 2, they at that time do not fully understand the second coming blazing glory of Jesus Christ until they come closer to that event. You say, does Peter ultimately understand that? You bet he does. Before he dies, he understands that, and he understands that under the inspiration of Scripture. Remember I shared with you 2 Peter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he says we are eyewitnesses of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in chapter 3 of that same epistle. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. 2 Peter 3.8 That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Christ is going to come back. He's going to obliterate that which we know now. He's going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth, something we can't even understand, we can't even comprehend, Peter. Says it's coming, and you say, What's the ultimate point of the transfiguration narrative? And a passage like this, he gives it in the next verse, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You say, What's the application? of affirming the second coming of Christ. It's not just to affirm that He's one day going to come. We know He's going to come. Scripture says it. The transfiguration speaks to it. But the ultimate application is, what is your life like and what is my life like as a result of knowing Jesus Christ will return? Is your conduct holy? Are you godly? Are you looking, verse 12, for the hastening of the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we, we believers, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, you're being prepared for something, and so am I. And we need to practice a lot for when righteousness dwells. A lot of practice, a lot of holiness. A lot of a lot of conduct that speaks of Christ. In fact, he says in verse 14, "Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless." Now, folks, I'd call that holiness, spotless, blameless. No one can place any blame on the character of your life. You're spotless. You're sort of like that person in Revelation that has the white linen that speaks of righteousness, that speaks of purity. That's that's the great relevance of affirming the second coming of the deity of Christ, whether it's in the transfiguration narrative or anywhere. What kind of person am I in light of the fact that Jesus said He's going to return? And what kind of person am I who says, I believe that Jesus is Lord? Well, do I live that way? You see, we as evangelicals, we'd say, Jesus is Lord. It's doctrinally true. It is absolutely and indefatigably true. And if it is true, you don't just affirm it as doctrinal truth. You apply it to your life. You say, Jesus is my Lord. Remember we sang that song? We exalt you as king and proclaim you as Lord. Your people will we be. We will be those kinds of people. You say, well, the difficulty with all this is that I need help. Well, you just, quote unquote, happen to have the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit, who indwells you. So that every time you fall, you confess it and forsake it, and He picks you up. And every time you sin, you confess it and forsake it, and He gives you grace. The Holy Spirit in concert with the love of Jesus Christ and the hope of your calling given to you by the electing grace of God the Father, we can look at that transfiguration narrative and say, I not only believe it, but I'm living in light of it. You say, well, that's Jesus Christ and His transfiguration. He's unique. He's the unique one. Well, isn't it interesting that that word metamorphosis that's used there to refer to Jesus Christ is actually the same word used in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, for us. Listen to it. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be... Metamorpho, but be transformed, be transfigured. How? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, now we're not just talking about a wish and a desire, we're talking about a command. This is a command. We are all commanded not to be conformed to this world, but to be transfigured, to have a metamorphosis in our life, to actually be transformed by the living and abiding Word of God. Folks, this is exciting. This is exciting to even think about, let alone live it out in a dying and decadent world. They're not talking about transformation of a character. They're embellishing and living in light of the conforming nature of the world because they are the world. You and I saw all of this press coverage yesterday with the downing of this plane in which John F. Kennedy was apparently the pilot. And they're speaking of all of this life and all of this character. And I say to myself... But what about someone who would be willing to speak of his testimony for Jesus Christ? Why? Because it isn't there. It isn't there. If you and I were to be so visible, my wife and I were talking about that. We're sitting on the couch and we're watching that late night news and she turned to me and said, what is so pathetic about all of this is that... No one is affirming that any of these people have a relationship with Jesus Christ. No one is saying, listen, I know that it appears as though this is a tragic death, as one untimely dying. But they had, oh, what a wonderful testimony about their faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a person who was able to say, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. He is God in human flesh and he was transfigured on that mountain to allude to the great, coming, powerful day of the Lord. Oh, what a testimony. All of these interviews, for all of these past days and all of these hours, and I say, it's wasted. Because Jesus Christ is not being glorified. I never heard one mention of Christ. I heard mentions of masses. I heard mentions of saying your rosary. I heard mentions of touching the beads. I heard allusions to prayers of hope against hope. But what about Jesus Christ? What about His transfiguring glory? What about the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back again? Oh, I would have wished if anybody would have said, now listen, this is a reminder for all of us that Jesus Christ is one day returning. What will you say When he asks you about your life, what will you say? Some of us would say, probably, I affirm his deity. I affirm that he's God. Some of us might even say, and I affirm that he, in fact, has the right to return as the chosen one of God to judge the world and to reward the righteous. But am I living in light of that right now? Is this my life? Is this my affirmation? By the way, that same word, transfiguration, transformation, metamorphosis. If it's true of you and if it's true of me, this is what's happening in our lives. Second Peter 3.18, same word. But we with all unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being metamorphosized, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Stages of glorification just as from the Lord the Spirit. See, that's that's a declaration about us as believers. Oh, that God would say to a watching world if my plane went down. He loved Jesus Christ. That's who He lived for. That's who He loved. That's who He told everyone around Him about. And if there's anything to say about Him, it's that He preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want you to bow your heads this morning. And when you do, ask yourself, is this my life? Is this my transfiguration? Oh, it's unique to Christ in terms of His deity and His second coming glory. But am I being metamorphosized? Am I being transformed? Is my countenance changing? Is my character changing? Is my heart, my attitudes, my thoughts, my desires, am I growing in Christ's likeness? Am I being transformed from one level of glory to another? Is the Holy Spirit maximizing the control of my life because I've yielded myself to Him? Oh Lord, if we don't learn anything else about the transfiguration of Christ and its implications today, Today is what we must learn because tomorrow is not promised. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Christ could come back even this very hour. Am I ready to meet him? If he would ask me about my allegiance to him, what would I say? If he were to come in that full and blazing glory, would I cower at his presence? Or would I be able to stand in His very righteousness acceptable to God the Father? Father, I pray for everyone here that you would encourage their heart if they know Christ. Encourage them, exhort them, admonish them to walk in a manner worthy of the Christ we say we love and serve. I pray that for my own life. That I would be growing because I understand the implications of what it means to understand the transfiguration of Christ, to understand His Holy Spirit, to understand His second coming. Father, I also pray for those who are in our midst who don't know Christ, who have been searching, or for those who have never searched. I pray that You would give them Christ. Allow them to recognize their sin. Allow them to confess it and desire to forsake it. And if our hands were to touch the handle of judgment, we pray that it would not be so hot and so fiery, but that it would be the hand of Jesus Himself touching the wrath of God on our behalf taking our sin upon Himself. And by believing in His name, be declared righteous in His sight. I pray that You would bring to the prayer room those whom You have destined from eternity past. In Jesus' name, Amen.